At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. It's Monday, April 24th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So recently, I went to a talk by some forensic experts, and it was kind of a daring talk, the kind where they show you what autopsies actually look like. And the crowd just, it was sort of a gruesome thing, and most of the crowd was like groaning the whole time. What do you think of when you see all of these kind of, hear these amazing tales of how people have died and see that on the screen? Can you handle it? Well, I mean, you know, if it's in the kind of glossy TV version, then yeah, I find it really interesting. Uh, But how close is the kind of autopsy table on Law and Order to what you actually see? It was a little past it, I'll say, but I'm definitely one that's always been, even the Law and Order stuff was too far for me. I, I can't handle it, but I know there's a subculture of people that really find the idea of how people die, especially in the weirdest ways kind of fascinating. Well, I mean, I think, you know, anyone who has consciousness has to at some point con- contemplate whether that consciousness continues forever or whether it ends. And the thought of it ending is extremely scary, I think, for me at least. And so I think, yeah, we are fascinated by that topic. And and the the bizarre ways in which people die, I think, kind of speaks to this you know, the the serendipity aspect of mortality, that you could do all the right things and still in a very, you know, have a ha- walk outside your office building and have a piano fall on your head. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there goes your consciousness, you know, there goes your entire essence. And so I think, yeah, I think that that that's this just weird existential thing to consider. So before this week's interview, I would resoundly say I was not interested in those stories of piano falling on people's heads, no matter how eloquent your description of it is. It was just too much for me to think of. Uh, but I met this week's guest, Paul Doherty. He's a staff scientist at the Exploratorium, and he's written a new book called And Then You're Dead, What Really Happens If You Get Swallowed by a Whale, or Shot from a Cannon, or one of my personal favorites, or Go Barreling Over Niagara Falls. Um, It's a mix of half real 
tales of how people have actually died, half fantastical tales, like what if you fell into a black hole? What would happen to you? And it sounds macabre, but it is very, we had an upbeat conversation about this. Do you have any of those weird questions that nag you? What would happen if? I mean, it's just, I just want to know what those moments, those last moments are like. I mean, do you know, is it, and, and if you, what is it, is it different if you know that it's coming versus if you don't? I mean, to me, it seems like if you know that you're about to die, that's way worse than if life just gets taken away from you. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't want to sit there and contemplate the possibility that I'm going to die now. Like that seems like a very aversive state. I uh, totally agree with that. But I will tell you this, this, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I've been to Niagara Falls more times than I can count. This made me reflect very differently on all the times I took that tourist photo shot of us sitting in a barrel pretending to go over Niagara Falls because the stories of people that actually did it um, are both amazing from a physics standpoint, but horrifying for the reasons you just said. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Paul Doherty. Paul Doherty, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for inviting me, Kishore. All right, let's start off with the why before we get into some of these fantastical stories. You wrote a book about the crazy ways people can or maybe could die. What? Where did this fascination come from? You know, I think inside of me, there's a 14-year-old. And 14-year-olds are interested in many things, but gruesome things are among the ones that are most interesting. So thinking about gruesome ways to die. And I think in many people, there's still that trace of the 14-year-old that's interested in fantastic things that could happen to people. So let's start with the one that really personally resonated with me. So I'm from Buffalo, New York. And one of the first ones I read was taking the trip in the barrel over the falls. And I have to tell you, like, as a kid growing up in, in Buffalo, there are all of these tourist destinations where you take a picture of yourself in the barrel and there's legends of people that went over the side in the barrel. This is a real story. This is a real story. 1906, the second person went over Niagara Falls in the barrel, Bobby Leach. And uh, he went over, he survived, uh, just really injured his knees and broke ribs and took him months to recover. It's, it's it's really hard on the body. And literally, they're stuffing themselves in these wooden, like, barrel caskets of, of yore. Like, when you think of old-time <laughs> um, bas- uh, uh, barrels, that that's what these look like. Do that's they right. do anything else besides stuff themselves in and seal it up? And, and they have some padding in there, which, which is really good. Um, and then, there's, then the problems begin because there's a long fall. And that long fall is fine, but it's the stop at the bottom, that sudden stop at the bottom. And depending on the orientation your barrel is in and your end when you hit, uh, it, it does different things. But one of the things about going over the falls in a barrel is that the water's going over with you, and it's dragging air down with it and filling the water below with air bubbles. So is that a good or a bad thing if you're in the barrel? That's a good thing because it makes the water softer when you hit it. So instead of hitting this water that is eight pounds per gallon, and you're going to hit it at 60 miles an hour and stop suddenly, now it's water mixed with air bubbles. And so your barrel hits, and it slows down a little more gently. Still nearly lethal, but at least you have a chance to survive. 
is being in the barrel better than if I just went over solo? Uh, better than than going over solo, um, and, and and worse. So so going over solo, what's what can happen is that you come down with the water, and the water sets up eddies, vertical rolling motions. So you get sent down a long way, and then you come back up near the surface, and then you go down again. So it can be a long time in the water, which is actually it has air in it, but not enough to breathe. And you get held down for more than a minute and you'll... And then you just suffocate. You just suffocate without the barrel. Now, with the barrel, you can also get trapped. And one of the people who went over Niagara Falls in a barrel was caught in an eddy in the barrel for hours. Hours. And he suffocated too. Wow. So people have survived this, as you say. People have survived. And people have passed away, as you've intimated. And people have passed away. Is this still something people are trying? Like, I can't imagine this is legal, first of all. These days, the authorities frown on having people go over in a barrel. It's, it's, they hate to dispose of the remains. But, uh, but one of the big things about river kayakers is that they've been taking their kayaks over shorter waterfalls and getting to crazy heights. And they have to worry as, as they go over in their kayak. If you hit sort of flat in a normal kayak position, you can really compress your spine and you'll come roaring down the waterfall. Again, maybe the air bubbles will soften your impact, but even the impact can be so strong that your body stops, the kayak stops, but your inner organs keep going, which is not good. That's the rub of acceleration, I guess. That's right. So another one that has been a topic in the news is airline safety. I don't think for the reasons you articulate in the book, <laughs> but it's one of, even though it's one of the safest modes of travel, yeah. I think everyone or most people get that sense that, oh, something could go wrong. Like, especially like, a door could blow out. There could be a yeah. crack in the window. And it's one of the first things you detail in the book is this idea of what if there is a hole in the window? How do we do? <laughs> yeah, so so in fact, um, every once a year or so, um, a, an airliner has what they call a loss of cabin pressure incident, okay? And I've actually gone through the Air Force training on what happens. I've actually gone through a loss of cabin pressure training. Well, let, well let's yeah. let's start for a second and say, when it's the cabin's pressurized, what is it pressurized to? So in fact, I have a an altimeter watch. And so when I fly, I like to look at the altitude on my watch. And very often, it's pressurized to a 7,000 feet. So they gradually take you up to 7,000 feet. And you're just sitting there. So it's not like you're getting up and running down the aisle. So it's higher than Denver but quite livable at 7,000, mostly. But then the plane is flying, you know, at, at 20, 30, 35,000 feet. That's right. And so that difference is a problem. That difference is a big problem. In fact, if, if a window were to blow out, so, so the window does blow out, which has happened once at least, um, then the air in the plane under 7,000 feet pressurized rushes out that window to the 35,000 feet low pressure air. I actually went looked up online the the calculator that says, given a hole this size with this pressure difference, how fast is the wind going out the hole? And the answer is 300 miles an hour. So if you're sitting next to the window when it blows out, there's a 300 mile an hour wind. That's the fastest wind ever recorded in a tornado. Okay, so that, if you're sitting by the window, that's not a good place to you're be. You're gone. You're gone. Yeah, it'll but suck you right out of your seatbelt. 
But that speed, it probably has a gradient across it. So if you're on the other side of the plane... In fact, if you're sitting on the aisle seat, it's the wind speed is probably not enough to pluck you out of your seatbelt. Uh, but however, the surprise thing is that when the pressure drops rapidly, all the air in your body comes out from all the orifices, and it's really humid, and the lowering of the pressure, the air expands and cools, and the cabin becomes opaque white with... Uh, Fog. Oh, it's essentially the water vapor from you, like the water visible water droplets. Yeah. Wow. And people see this and they think, plane's on fire. It's not. It's just fog. It'll clear away momentarily. And does the size of the hole make a huge difference here? Um, no. In fact, one of the airplanes, uh, an Aloha Airlines flight, lost like 20 feet of roof. The, the, the plane had gone up and down 90,000 flights from one island to the next. And it stressed the metal of the plane every flight. And eventually, the roof blew off the entire plane. And that was an instant decompression, allowed a lot of wind into the airplane. Only one stewardess got sucked out of the airplane. All the passengers stayed in their seats. They're injured by being buffeted around by the wind. But that was a really very rare decompression. That's incredible. Yeah. I want to move on to a few stories you get into that haven't happened. They're, they're sort of flights of fancy. And I got to start with probably the most, most famous one that I always hear about, you know, courtesy of, of folks like Neil deGrasse Tyson is, what if we fell into a black hole? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Neil. Uh, he, he taught me the term spaghettification. <laughs> no. And, yeah. It's not, now it's, I'm worried it's... about asking this question. <laughs> no. So, so it turns out, you know, in free fall, if you fall off a building and you're falling through the air on Earth, you're not in trouble until you stop at the bottom. It's not like that with a black hole. You're falling into the black hole. And it turns out it's got 10 times the mass of the sun in the size of San Francisco. And so your feet, let's say you're falling feet first, your feet are closer to the black hole than your head is. And we all know, theoretically, that gravity gets weaker the far away, farther away you are. So your feet are being accelerated towards the black hole more rapidly than your head is. So you feel this gentle tug stretching you, just like a chiropractor. And, and also, you're being squeezed in by the gravity a little bit. But as you get closer to the black hole, even a thousand kilometers from the black hole, that tug becomes strong enough to rip you in half. And that's not good. And in fact, at a mere 300 kilometers above the black hole, just 200 miles above the black hole, it would rip apart a steel rod. That the force on the bottom of the steel rod close to the black hole is so much greater than the force at the top, it would accelerate apart. How much does it matter the size of the black hole? Um, so yeah, black holes, there's a, a range of sizes. It does matter. So there's, they start off at a few solar masses and then they range up 10 solar masses. But recently, we discovered supermassive black holes. And they have a million, a billion solar masses. They're much bigger. They're a good chunk of the solar system in size. And you can't get close enough for the tidal force to rip you apart. So you can actually fall into one of those and see what's on the inside. <laughs> We did a whole show just about supermassive black holes ah. relatively recently, you know, being at the center of the, of most galaxies. 
and um, I'm okay. I don't need to fall into one. Um, spaghettification, I think that was enough to, um, you know, uh, take me away from that. I, I mean, you're also talking about, you know, light changes properties. There's a million, there's so many, you know, things that we take for granted in this sort of macro universe that will change around that black hole as well. That's right. Uh, so, you know, you've never seen light bend under gravity on the Earth. You've seen light bend when it goes over something hot, a hot road and the, the air, the scenery beyond kind of wavers because the light's bending through the hot and the cold air. But around a black hole, gravitation is strong enough that light actually bends. And so as you fall in closer and closer to the black hole, the light is being bent down towards you from above. And so the, your view of the universe gets distorted by gravity. And that's so amazing. So even though you're getting ripped in half, you won't <laughs> be looking, even if you look down, it won't appear like it'll be down below. You'll be bent then. That's right. Or just looking off to the side a little bit. And uh, the light you're seeing to the side actually probably started out heading up away from you, would miss you, but then the gravity of the black hole bent it around and sent it into your eye. You know, when you watch a sunset and the sun is just touching, the, the bottom of the sun is just touching the horizon, if I sucked the air out of the entire earth, the actual sun would be below the horizon. And the air of the earth acts like a lens and it bends the sunlight around to you so that you see the sun above the horizon when it really isn't. And that would happen as you got close to the black hole as well. That's the coolest fact about being torn in half that I think I've ever heard. <laughs> At least you'll have a wonderful view as you go. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there's one that I can't not bring up. The most, the story on the deadliest animal on Earth, the mosquito. A story, and it, it's an animal we've done so many shows on yeah. because of how deadly it is. Um, but there's an interesting sort of uh, idea you preface here. And and by the way, I'm allergic to mosquitoes. I'm one of those that's on the side of like eradicate that species off the face of the earth. 80s Egypti, I never need to see you again. Yeah. But this idea of you prop, you basically posit, could mosquitoes suck you dry? Right. So some researchers sacrificed themselves by taking off their shirt and stepping outside in Alaska in the summer and allowing themselves to be bitten by mosquitoes and then measuring the rate at which the blood was being removed from their bodies. And then they dashed back inside and swatted and stopped it before it got too far. And so we know the number of microliters that each mosquito takes from your body. And we can add it up and find out how long is it going to take for the mosquitoes to take one liter of blood? That's what you get give when you go to a blood drive, or two liters of blood, or three. And we have about five liters of blood in us. So if we yeah. get past two, we're in trouble. If you get past two, you're beginning to feel ill and you're getting in trouble. You get a little beyond that, you pass out, and then the mosquitoes finish the job. So I hesitate to ask, how many bites... You know, I, I'm not remembering the number of bites, but thousands and thousands. Like of hundreds bites. of thousands? Probably. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of bites. Yeah, and because so, actually, so on the, on the order of 10 microliters, 100,000 bites per liter, three liters, 300,000 bites. There we go. Wow. Is that possible? Like, uh, could a swarm of, mos of that many? I mean, you would need like 300,000 mosquitoes to come bite you. Mosquitoes actually do kill young caribou. 
This way. This way. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so if, if it can get a caribou, it can get you. Oh my God. Wow. I'm going to have trouble sleeping tonight because of that image. <laughs> Do you have any favorites uh, of this whole you know, s- series well, of vignettes about this? Well, one of my the biggest surprises for me was that um, magnetism, I think of as this friendly force. I, I play with magnets on my refrigerator and even in the laboratory. It, it turns out um, I've arranged an experiment where I hang a soda straw from the middle of the soda straw on a straw string and I put a grape on each end of the soda straw and I bring a modern strong magnet near the grape and it pushes the grape away. We're so used to magnets attracting things. It's a surprise to see that a magnet, a modern strong magnet called a neodymium magnet can push a grape and both poles push the grape north and south. And that magnet has a strength we call one Tesla. That's, that's a unit of magnetism. Well, and, and, but that has no effect on your body. You bring a magnet next to your body, one Tesla. You go inside of an MRI machine, two Teslas, three Teslas. They're finding out things about you, and it's not hurting you. However, as long as you don't stay in there forever. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah. So, but, but I discovered there are stars in the sky called magnetars. And these are neutron stars that have collapsed and kept their magnetism. And they are a hundred billion times stronger than an MRI machine. Okay. And at that level of magnetism, all the atoms in your body first stretch out into cigar shapes instead of being spherical. And then they go into long rods and then all the bonds break from all the neighbors and every molecule in your body comes apart. And even the electrons leave the atoms and you become a plasma. A human cloud plasma, a human-shaped plasma. So you you completely change state of matter. Yes, you go straight from a solid and liquid mixture to a plasma purely by magnetic field. And and you're not talking about this as just interacting with iron and some of the other particles in your body that you know we call just superficially just magnetic. This is fundamental, like on an atomic level. It's ripping. It, it's realigning electrons. Uh, relative to the nucleus. Yeah, every electron is a magnet. An electron has charge and spin, and and every electron's a magnet, and it's a weak magnet. But 100 billion Teslas is enough to reach into every atom, grab every electron, and yank it away. So when you see, uh, we just got back from CERN. We did a show a couple weeks ago. So when we're talking about a magnet there, we're still talking about, you know, relatively small Tesla. It's still like 12. Yeah. 10, 12 Tesla. So, but that magnetic field, not strong enough to kill you. We have to get up to that 100 billion number. That's right. Yeah, 10, 10, 12 still. In fact, if I could make the magnet at CERN bigger, I could do what the researchers have done to a frog. And you can use the magnetic repulsion I was telling you about with grapes. And they've actually flown a frog against gravity with magnetism. And there was no ill effect on the frog. The listeners can't see my face, but I'm making the same face you are. You've flown a frog against gravity. Yes. And, and you know, I'm so strong in my belief that magnetism won't hurt me. I volunteer to be the first human to replace the frog and to fly in a 10 Tesla magnetic field because I think it'd be awesome. That would be an incredible demonstration. I think there's cheaper alternatives <laughs> for flying. I, 
you have this infectious spirit and like we're talking about death and and destruction like i it has your feeling about um about our fragility changed uh, after going through and and doing research for this book yeah you know one of the things you learn from this book is that humans are very fragile creatures if you were to be transported at random to any other place in the universe you're dead in 4 minutes or less uh, the Earth's surface is so welcoming and warm and fuzzy for humans. It's great to be here. And we just happen to look into a few ways on the Earth's surface that you should worry about. You should take care that you don't fall off the Golden Gate Bridge or get into an elevator that falls. You know, just what? What? don't go over Niagara Falls in a barrel no matter what. <laughs> There's two things I'm taking away. No barrel for me over Niagara Falls. <laughs> That dream trip to Alaska I've wanted, I'm going to definitely be much more careful now I've heard of the mosquito stales. For our listeners, the book is called What Really Happens If You Get Swallowed by a Whale or Shot from a Cannon or Go Barreling Over the Niagara Falls, and Then You're Dead. Um, Paul Doherty, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Inquiring Minds, and Kishore for having me. So as somebody that's allergic to mosquitoes, I still have the creepy collie feeling on my skin as he talked about mosquitoes sucking you dry because that image of mosquitoes actually sucking a caribou dry of blood just purely from the bites and taking, you know, one microliter of fluid per bite and being able to remove all of the blood, enough blood for it to die. Oh, I think yeah. I'm going to have nightmares. I mean, that's like, you know, the insect version of Chinese water torture. It sounds horrendous. Is there any, is, you know, is there, is that, you think that does ever happen to a human being? Well, they, I mean, that idea of those researchers going out in Alaska and getting, and like allowing themselves to be bit and then counting it to figure out how many microliters of fluid a mosquito takes in on average. In the book, it actually, he, he details is 9,000 bites they counted on themselves. Uh, well, to, to measure that number, and and you know those Alaskan mosquitoes are are huge. Really? <laughs> I've been to, yeah, I've been to the Canadian Arctic, and I used to, so I put myself through college taking people on tours, uh, very part various parts of the world, including north of the Arctic Circle in Canada and in Alaska, and. Oh my God, they are they are massive mosquitoes. So I imagine like one Alaskan mosquito can probably like take on ten mosquitoes that you find anywhere else and and suck more blood. But that's just speculation. I think we might have to have you on as a guest to talk about these tours you took people on to the Canadian High Arctic. That sounds fascinating. I do have a couple of really good stories. Uh, two back to back tours in which I had passengers die on me. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we can talk about that, you know, in, t in terms of like talking about the macabre that, you know, there was one, it, it, those experiences totally changed my life. There was one experience where, you know, I actually had the person in my arms as he took his last breath because there, we, there was just no doctor around. We were actually, we had just boarded a ship and, uh, I, he was having a high, a heart attack, but it was a silent infarct. So it comes from below. So the symptoms are very different. They're more like they, as if he's getting sick, uh, you know, vomiting and so forth. But in any case, you know, I knew that something was really wrong. I called for the doctor. I knew that we had to get, we were as a remote part of Alaska. We had to get into the port because I knew that that was the, our best chance of getting to a doctor. And I knew that on the ship, there would be a doctor. So I got him on the ship, but the doctor on the ship had gone out for lunch and was, didn't have her, uh, her pager and wasn't answering the pages. Oh no. Yeah. 
Yeah. So wow. we called, you know, we called a fire department and but by the time they came, he had already, uh, you know, expired. And so I, I had the experience of, you know, having his wife, they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary on this cruise. And, uh, you know, I sat with his wife and and she was amazing. She was like, you know, he died super happy. He died. He's wanted to do this trip for a long time and he's looking forward to it. And we've had a great time and he didn't suffer. And, you know, so but it was me who was closing his eyes and, you know, doing all these things. And I was like 20. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That's yeah. unbelievable. I mean, it, obviously very formative, but at the same time, for such a scarring kind of very difficult incident, it sounds like there were some positive moments there that you can at least recall. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much uh, from his wife about how to deal with death in a sort of, you know, very mature pr way. And uh, so and then and then, of course, I had to go through we had just the ship was in on technically U.S. soil, but we had, it was like this whole Canadian thing we were in. A, anyway, it was it was this weird thing about how do you get a body over customs. Um, but anyway, so and that was like at the end of that, that was like the trip from hell where we had also dealt with forest fires and all these other things. It's a very long story. The next tour I took uh it was to newfoundland and i also had a passenger die on that trip and i came home and my mom said jokingly so did you kill anyone <laughs> and i said yep <laughs> Sorry. yeah it was you uh, can laugh about it now but it, i can yeah, i'm definitely was... i'm definitely afraid of going on any tours with you at this point well and you know it was those are very rare occurrences but uh you know, people die on ships, people die on airplanes, people die on while traveling all the time. And so if you're in the travel industry, you know, you're, these experiences are not that infrequent. But at the same time, these are people who are at the end of their lives and who are having a great time. And, you know, in some ways, it's much better than being in hospice for six months, you know, waiting to die. It just echoes what Paul said to close the interview is that uh, upon writing this book, he reflected that we are incredibly fragile creatures that makes him value the time that we have here uh, even more so. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds and stay safe, everyone. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Black Hole enthusiast Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.